The latest research shows that paranoia and suspicious thoughts occur in up to 25% of the population. Patients used to be discouraged from discussing their paranoid ideation with their clinician, but now new techniques designed to reduce distress actually encourage people to talk about their paranoia. Welcome to Focus on Psychiatry. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. Daniel Freeman. Dr. Freeman is a Wellcome Trust Fellow at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College in London and a consultant clinical psychologist in the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much, Leslie. Great to be talking to you today. Dr. Freeman, let's start with the basics. What is paranoia? Well, it's an excellent place to start because there is great confusion about the term. Paranoia is unfounded or exaggerated fear that others are deliberately trying to harm you. So you might think others are trying to irritate you or upset you or are spreading rumors or may even try and physically harm you. So paranoid fears contain a range of physical or psychological or social threats. And people may fear the perpetrators of family or friends, neighbors, or strangers, or government agencies, or even spirits or alien forces. How common is it? You know, I mentioned in our intro as much as a quarter of people, but how could that be? Well, there's a spectrum of severity of paranoia in the general population. So many people have a few mild paranoid thoughts, and only a few have very many severe paranoid thoughts. And the latest evidence indicates that perhaps one in four people are readily having paranoid thoughts. At the severe end of the spectrum, you see persecuted delusions, and they're often seen in the context of severe mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, and persecuted delusions present in a much smaller proportion of the population, about 2 or 3%. Okay. So the paranoia perhaps is almost as common as anxiety and depression, but far less discussed. But also like anxious fears, like fears of spiders, for example, many of us have mild, but only a few of us have clinically severe experiences. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, why in the past were people discouraged from talking about their paranoid thoughts? Well, that's interesting. Paranoia has become locked into this discourse about madness and irrationality. And it happened a long time ago, about two and a half thousand years ago with Hippocrates. And he applied the term paranoia, which means out of one's mind. So the sort of delirious rambling that happens when someone's in a fever, so when someone's acutely physically unwell. And the term was picked up again when psychiatric systems were being developed in about the 18th century. And again, it's considered really as a sign of madness. So therefore, it was always viewed as sort of inexplicable, understandable, and even described as empty speech acts. So therefore, if it's this confused rambling, really the prevalent view of it was that people should be discouraged from talking about paranoia. How can we understand paranoia from a psychological perspective? Well, over the last 10 years, there's been great strides in understanding paranoia, and not least of which is this understanding that it is on a spectrum. But there's a number of findings that have emerged, and I'll just highlight a few of them. Firstly, paranoia isn't about empty speech acts. It tends to be people's attempts to make sense of what's happening to them. It's their explanations, interpretations of experience. Now, anxiety is important. People who are anxious are more likely paranoid because anxiety is about anticipation of danger. Worry, rheumatoid styles, another factor because worry tends to lead us to think about worse outcomes and it leads to us to our fears persisting. Paranoia also tends to build on low self-esteem, so it builds on our own vulnerabilities. Also, if you've had bad things happen to you from other people, then understandably that also makes you a little bit more wary of other people. Also, if you happen to have anomalous internal experiences, we call them, or things like perceptual anomalies, if things sometimes appear too bright or sound too loud, those sorts of things that can lead you into paranoid thoughts because the world seems a bit strange. And if you tend to jump to conclusions, don't tend to think about alternative explanations for, for what's happening. 
might be more likely to be paranoid. So paranoia very broadly arises from an interaction of sort of negative emotions and sort of unusual internal sensations and it's a reasoning biases. Are paranoid patients dangerous? Most individuals who are feeling paranoid tend to be very anxious and nervous and tend to be worried. So actually the greatest risk concerns you know, harm to themselves because depression is very common. So you'd certainly worry about the presence of suicidal thoughts, for example. Now, for a subtype, they can be angry with their, with their paranoia. And certainly individuals with a severe end with schizophrenia, for a gain of subgroup of those people, there isn't a slight increase in the risk of violence. So clinically, you do certainly want to think about whether there's any potential harm to the perceived perpetrators. But on the whole, what you're probably most worried about clinically is the levels, the high levels of anxiety and depression in this group, and therefore the increased risk of suicide. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Focus on Psychiatry from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Daniel Freeman. He's a co-author of a new book, Paranoia, the 21st Century Fear, and we are discussing what to do with the paranoid patient. Dr. Freeman, tell us about treating the paranoid patient. As I suspect, many people know that in the severe instances in the context of schizophrenia, then people are typically treated with neuroleptic medication. However, of course, they don't work for everyone. Relapse rates are high, and there's residual symptoms and side effects. So increasingly, people are also using cognitive behavior therapy, CBT. And there's certainly evidence from randomized controlled trials that can be helpful. So CBT is a talking therapy in which there's a sort of collaborative, empathic exploration of paranoia and how to overcome it with the person. So in CBT, we spend time thinking with the person about what may cause the paranoia and why it's persisting. We help people to review their paranoid thoughts and even sort of test them out to see how accurate they are. And we also spend time encouraging people to uh, ruminate less and adopting a more mindful approach to their paranoid thoughts, acknowledging that they have them, but not engaging with them and then letting them go. And of course, because paranoia is so much associated with negative mood, we also do things to try and improve people's mood so that can range from increasing activities and exercise and their diet. Is the cognitive behavioral therapy something that a primary care physician can do, or do we really need to refer to someone like you, a psychologist, to help these patients? Well, I think elements of the CBT approach can be used by many people. So I think if you're a GP, what's obviously very important to remember is that people can feel very reticent about talking about paranoid fears because they may fear that you know people are going to label them as going crazy. So it's important to help people understand these fears are common. It doesn't inevitably mean they're going mad. And basically, just like take some of the sting out of the whole experience for them. And also, a very CBT technique is not to sort of go out telling people they're wrong and challenging their ideas without listening, mm. but to empathise with the distress they're having, to engage with the person, let them talk more openly about their paranoid fears. And certainly, a CBT we encourage people to share their fears with a trusted person and about you know, not treating false as facts and thinking about alternative explanations. Of course, the GPs are also involved in helping people to improve their mood. And I think anything that improves mood tends to lessen paranoia. I think when the cases obviously are very severe, then referral to CBT specialist is certainly indicated or a psychiatrist. And how would you define severe in this case? Well, that's an excellent question. That could be sometimes very hard to do. Right. What we do know is that in clinical cases, the paranoid thoughts are going to be held more strongly, so the person is much more certain others are trying to harm them. They're also going to say it's much more distressing, and of course it's going to be impacting more on their life. So it's going to interfere much more in their social relationships. There'd be much more avoidance, for example. And you'd also expect to see high levels of anxiety and depression. But the key thing really is the distress that it causes the person. 
And how about not only the distress that it causes the patient, but the distress that it causes the provider? You mean that when you're dealing with the person in the clinic? Right, yeah. You know, if you're scared of this paranoid patient, maybe that's a good signal that you need to refer them out. That's certainly can be the case. But I think on the whole with, with paranoid, as I said, I think often it reflects some low self-esteem the person has and they're worried about being rejected socially by others. So actually the anger is, is, is obviously if there is a severe anger then that's certainly an indication of referring on. But in many cases really the person is much more likely to feel miserable and depressed. Your book brings up an excellent question and that is are we entering into the age of paranoia? Yes, that's right. So in some of the book we do discuss this issue. Unfortunately paranoia was only viewed as occurring in those with severe mental illness. They were very rarely done any checks of levels of paranoia in the general population. So we don't know for sure whether levels of paranoia are changing. But it seems, as we understand more about paranoia, that it's quite likely that we could be entering age of, um, a new age of paranoia. There's a number of reasons for that. Perhaps one of the most obvious is that there's so much over-reporting of threats from other people going mm. on. So if we look in newspapers or magazines or on television, they would really be highlighting threats from other people, from terrorists and criminals and paedophiles. Now, this over-reporting leads people to overestimate the likelihood of the current these events, i.e. it can elicit paranoia. And this happens because of something called the availability heuristic, which is a well-known reasoning process, which is about we estimate how likely an event is to happen simply by how easily we can bring it to mind. And when the media exaggerates these threats, we, we can much more easily bring them to mind and therefore we'll overestimate them. That sounds complex. The easiest way to understand this is if you watch the movie Jaws, and go swimming in the sea, you'll be much more fearful of sharks than you should be. And that kind of happens at the same processes at work with threats from other people. Mm. So there's this interaction between the media and our own reasoning processes. There's also a number of social changes going on, and we highlight a number in the book. One of them, for example, is about urbanisation. This year, for the first time ever, half the world's population lives in cities. Back in 1800, it was about 5%, and it's estimated that by 2030, uh, 60% So people living in close proximity tends to make you paranoid. But it's the irony, isn't it, that as we sort of get even closer to people, actually social cohesion and isolation actually increases. I think you know, we see that many more people are living alone in cities and you know, there's often a breakdown of social support network. Um, so it's quite possible that we're going to be encountering paranoia uh, even more in, in clinical practice. Now, what resources can you recommend to our listeners who are interested in learning more about paranoia? I, I know for myself, even as a psychiatry resident, we really didn't learn much about this. Yeah, that's absolutely right, because people simply learned about diagnoses such as schizophrenia. And equally, if you look on a self-help literature bookshelf, they're groaning with books on anxiety and depression. And in fact, there's only one on paranoia, which is called Overcoming Paranoid and Suspicious Thoughts. And that's written by myself and uh, my brother, Jason Freeman, and my colleague, Philip Garrity. And that explains the CPT approach to paranoia. There's also a website, which is at www.paranoidthoughts.com, and that contains a lot of personal accounts of paranoia and also people's tips for dealing with paranoia, as well as sources of further help. That's a number of places people can go to get more information about paranoia. Yeah, the website, I thought, was really helpful to patients. Uh, There's even an online test you can take to see just how paranoid you are. That's right. I mean, the personal accounts, this is the only place that there is a forum for all of this. We've got larger uh, accounts from people. And you can, you know, from reading them, you realize how much people benefit from hearing the, 
they're not alone and others have very similar experiences to them. I wonder, though, how it might make some people paranoid to enter this data in an Internet kind of a forum. That's right. Well, we, we certainly emphasize that they can change their name and the names ah. are changed on there. So, so um, we don't give out any details that identify people on it. So it counts uh, anonymized. So certainly we have both of your books on paranoia that people can turn to for information. The website, which again is www.paranoidthoughts.com. And again, that's appropriate for the patients as well as the healthcare providers. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today to help us understand paranoia. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you today. We've been talking about what to do with your paranoid patients with Dr. Daniel Freeman, who's a Welcome Trust Fellow at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College in London and a consultant clinical psychologist in the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Again, that website is www.paranoidthoughts.com. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Lunt, and you've been listening to Focus on Psychiatry on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at our website, reachmd.com. And once again, thank you for listening.